Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Between Catholics and Protestants, the list of common beliefs, values, and practices is much longer and more substantive than the differences. Why then has our alliance been so weak in stemming the tide of public secularization, immoralism, and decadence? In this episode, we bring you a lecture that was delivered as part of Acton University 2018, featuring Peter Kreeft speaking on the commonalities enjoyed by Catholics and Protestants. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash actonvault. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act and Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Uh, I am uh, Peter Kraft, I think, uh, at least as long as I wear this sign. And I've been asked to talk about what Protestants and Catholics have in common, which is a very important topic because... They're the two main kinds of Christians in the Western world, and only Christ can save the world, and he works mainly through us. So if we're fractured, the world is fractured. I have 30 answers. I find 30 things Protestants and Catholics have in common. Uh, the first eight of them are natural things. The next two are supernatural things. The next three are theological things. The next four are epistemological things. The next eight are cultural things. The next four are ecumenical things. And the last four are practical things. So you get uh, a lot of stuff for your money, 30. The first and from one point of view, the most important and certainly foundational thing that Protestants and Catholics have in common is existence. We both exist, and that's something that we almost always forget. Existence is the result of creation. Creation means the giving of existence. Only God can create. The Hebrew word, barach, which means to create, does not exist in any other earthly language at the time, because nobody but the Jews had this concept of a God who could bring being out of nothing. Since existence is God's distinctive gift, uh, and since you can't give what you don't have, God must have existence to the nth degree. He is infinite, unlimited existence, and therefore he can make what he is. Uh, and therefore, even if the culture leaves you and your friends leave you and life leaves you, existence does not. Anything that exists, a grain of sand manifests God. Even Muhammad knew that. In the Quran, it says, wherever you turn, there is the face of God. Wherever you turn, you turn to something that exists. Valadares, a Cuban Christian who was imprisoned by Fidel Castro, uh, wrote in his uh, autobiography, Against All Hope, that uh, it was the sheer existence of things like a little spider in his cell. And then when the, his torturers saw that he was experiencing a kind of a communion with the, the spider, killed it. Uh, a little stone in his cell kept him sane. 
for months because God was in that stone. All right, that's the most universal uh, and probably neglected thing that we all have in common. Secondly, we have life in common. Uh, we are members of a very small and arrogant oligarchy, the ones who are still walking around on two legs. Most human beings are dead or haven't yet been born. So that's a precious gift. When Moses summarized all of God's law in two words, his two words were choose life. Thirdly, we have human nature in common. Uh, God did not create two species. He created two genders, and that made for some interesting pyrotechnics, uh, but not two species. We're all one family. Despite the immense differences which amount to war, hatred, and murder between members of that family, uh, the familiness of the family cannot be eradicated. A fourth thing we have in common is reason, that which distinguishes us from the animals, the lower animals. We're animals too, of course. Uh, there is no such thing as Chinese logic and American logic or uh, masculine logic and feminine logic or Christian logic and atheist logic. There is just logic. And logic comes from the logos. It is not a human invention. It expresses the eternal nature of God. A fifth thing we have in common is a moral conscience. You can suppress your conscience, you can try to kill it, but it's as immortal as your soul, you can't really kill it. All you can do is hit it and hurt it and silence it. It's a still small voice, but it's immortal. And therefore, all individuals and all religions and all cultures have essentially the same moral standards and virtues and obligations. There has never been and never will be a culture or a religion that teaches that violating the Ten Commandments is virtue and obeying them is vice. Nietzsche tried to create such a culture. He failed. A sixth thing we have in common is free will. Uh, we don't have our choices in common, but our power to choose we have in common. Uh, if we don't have free will, uh, then there's no sense at all in morality. You don't preach to a Coke machine when it fails to deliver a Coke. You don't tell it to pray and go to confession, and you don't expect it to feel guilt. You simply kick it. <laughs> and those who deny conscience will eventually uh, kick you. But it's the only recourse they have. A seventh and highly neglected thing in our culture that we all have in common is the heart. Uh, there's a tendency among many Christians uh, to think of the heart as something we have in common with animals. But uh, although some of the heart's feelings and emotions we have in common with animals, the most important ones, uh, we don't. Animals don't have a feeling of guilt or adoration or gratitude. And the heart is at least as important as the head. Without the heart pumping blood into the brain, the brain doesn't think any more than the heart uh, pumps without the brain's direction. Finally, we ultimately have the same hope, the same desire, a desire for 
happiness or even deeper than happiness, joy, something that doesn't get boring, something that we can't make movies about. There's never been a good movie about heaven. In fact, if you try to define heaven or describe it, uh, even if you were very concrete and a very good writer and you had one column of all the concrete things you wanted to be in heaven and all the concrete things you wanted not to be in heaven and imagined yourself getting your own heaven, you'd be bored. Might take a few years, might take a few centuries, but you'd be bored. We don't know what we want, but we want something that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, which is exactly what God has promised us. All right, those are all universal, natural things that human beings have in common that make us human. Supernaturally, we all, whether we admit it or not, have God in common. Uh, I saw a bumper sticker once that said uh, uh, it had this picture of uh, uh, evolution, uh, apes gradually becoming human, and underneath it, it said, uh, my ancestors were human. Sorry to hear about yours. <laughs> However God did it, he's behind it. So God as our creator and created in his image. We're, we're not the King Kong's kids. We're the King God's kids. Made in imago dei, which means we're lacking in divine life, the image, a photograph, uh, a picture uh, of something alive is not itself alive unless it gets a second life. On the other hand, it's a holy picture. It's a picture of something so holy that it can't be expressed. And we also have God in common as our end, our omega, our summum bonum, our destiny. We don't fully understand that. Uh, whatever you can understand, that's not God. And yet we understand that we can't understand that, and we understand why we can't understand that. We're finite, he's infinite. My favorite sermon of all time, probably because I have ADD and get bored very easily, is also the shortest sermon I have ever read. Uh, it's in the writings of St. Catherine, a late medieval mystic. God himself preached it to her, and he said, I'm going to summarize all of divine revelation in four words. Everything I've been trying to get across to the human race, and they haven't quite got it yet, uh, can be summarized in two sentences. Number one, I'm God. Number two, you're not. <laughs> we keep forgetting that second thing. Good to remind us of it. Well, what's the glue that connects us to God? I've given 10 answers to what we all have in common. Uh, and the next three are things that not all human beings have in common, but only those who choose it. And those are the three theological virtues, the three glues that glue us to God, faith, hope, and charity. Faith is the root of God's life in the soul, the beginning. And hope is the growing stem that makes it alive. Uh, and charity is its most precious and beautiful fruit. They're one thing. God's life comes in one end by faith and out the other by charity. The whole dispute about faith and works is silly. Well, not silly, but mistaken. Uh, faith, what's that? Well, a, a wholehearted yes to God, 
with your mind and your will and your heart, and yes to God's revelation, God's word. Uh, and God's word, according to scripture, is primarily Christ. Yes, there is God's word on paper, but the primary meaning of that is God's word on wood, the wood of the cross. And the plug-in uh, to that divine electricity is faith. And then that faith grows, and that's hope. And hope is faith directed towards the future. Uh, hope is yes to God's promises. Uh, charity is the, uh, the fruit that's produced by that. If, if the plant does not produce the fruit, it's not a plant. It's dead. It may as well be dead. Uh, faith is essentially an act of the intellect, though prompted by the will. And hope is essentially an act of the emotions or desires, also prompted by the will. And charity is an act of the will. Thomas Aquinas defines love or charity or agape very simply as the will to the good of the other. That's why God is charity, both in himself, because each of the persons gives himself away forever to the others, uh, and towards us. That's why uh, the love ethic and the theology go together. The doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine that God is love uh, are seen by non-Christians as inhabiting different worlds entirely. They all love God as love. They all do not like the Trinity. But they're the same thing in different words. Well, the fourth category I call epistemological. Epistemology is about truth and how you know the truth. And the question of how you know the truth about God is, for Christians, uh, capable of four answers. Uh, you know the truth about God through Scripture, who is the, which is the divine-inspired Word of God. Uh, you know God through the church, the body of Christ. Church and Scripture are interdependent, like a teacher in a textbook. Uh, and both are authored by Christ, and authorized by Christ. And Christ is the line in the sand that sharply distinguishes Christians from non-Christians. Uh, if you believe the earliest Christian creed, the three-word formula repeated twice by St. Paul in his epistles, namely, Jesus is Lord, kurios, a word that no Christian used for uh, a temporal Lord like Caesar. If you believe that, you're a Christian. You may be a bad Christian, a confused Christian, a heretical Christian, but uh, saying yes to that makes you a Christian. Uh, and if you don't believe that, then you're not a Christian, even though you say you are. You're a dissenter. That's the polite word for heretic. That's the, the clear line drawn in the sand. Uh, even those who don't believe in Christ can know God by a kind of anonymous belief, uh, because Christ is not the one who enlightens only Christians, but according to his own word, he is the one who enlightens every man who comes into the world, John 1 verse 9, the Logos. So God the Father, Christ, church, and scripture, four links in a chain, inseparable. Uh, we believe in Christ because he is the son of the father. We believe in the church because it's his church. We believe in scripture because it's his book. 
That's a lot to have in common, but there's more. I'm descending from profound philosophical abstractions to much more concrete and changeable uh, details of our time and our culture. As everybody here knows, our culture is in crisis. But as many of us don't know, that's normal. Uh, the impression that you're living in a Christian culture in a kind of a safe bubble is an illusion. That's never been the case. Many people who don't know much of history uh, think that the Middle Ages were a kind of uh, peaceful time. Maybe not on the battlefield, but at least theologically, uh, they smile at each other and they believe the same thing. Uh, not true. They were wild, passionate, and controversial. In fact, medieval Europe was much more passionate than current Europe. Europe believes nothing, so there's nothing to be passionate about anymore. <laughs> but we've always been countercultural. Jesus promised that. In this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. And if you don't have tribulation, that means you're not really doing his work. If you're not bleeding somehow, if there's not splinters in you broken off from the cross, you're not close enough to him. If somebody doesn't hate you, uh, then you're not very Christian. So we've always been countercultural, whatever the culture. There's different things in different culture, different idols that different cultures have, but uh, there's only one God. As Chesterton said, there's only one angle at which you can stand upright. There's an infinity of angles at which you can fall, and all cultures fall. We are called not only to be countercultural, but also to live what that great mind, Abraham Kuyper, called the cultural mandate, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, not just uh, the religious gospel, but the total human gospel, to liberate people, to liberate the poor and the oppressed and the suffering. Uh, and today, uh, the forms of oppression and suffering are quite different than they were a century or two ago but people still hurt. People are victims not so much of uh, uh, imperial tyranny anymore as of uh, the, the soft totalitarianism, as de Tocqueville puts it. And the main instrument of our soft totalitarianism is obviously the sexual revolution. I remember seeing a large button on the face of a very unhappy woman once, uh, and the button said, victim of the sexual revolution. So we have not only a, a common cultural mandate and a common task to be uh, an agent of change in the culture, uh, we also have common enemies. doesn't matter whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic, the devil hates you if you're a Christian, and he'll get at you. And the holier you are, the more pissed the devil's going to be, and you'll try to, he'll try to make you his toilet. And we've got to find the lever that uh, flushes him down. Uh, and there's even another enemy that's even more bothersome than the devil, and that is his spies in our souls, which are sins. All sins come from hell. Sin is not just no-nos. Sin is not just uh, uh, something that's sort of unhealthy, um, a mistake, an error, a forgetting. No, uh, sin is doing the work of the Antichrist. There's nothing in the world worse than sin. Very few people anymore believe that sin is worse than pain. But it is. God deliberately inflicts pain sometime. 
never deliberately inflicts sin. So we've got common enemies. And of course, sin starts at home. Solzhenitsyn's great line, which I'm sure most of you have heard, the fault line, the canyon between good and evil does not reside primarily between ideologies or between nations or between states or between cultures. It cuts in half every single human soul. We also have common idolatries, common temptations. Uh, one of them, namely lust, has always been with us. It's never been as prominent and as imperious uh, and as all-consuming as it is now, but it's always been there. Human nature doesn't fundamentally change. But <sighs> politics, I suppose, has always been a possible temptation, especially a politics of power. But uh, the devil loves to get us to use our religion as a means to politics. Uh, he doesn't care whether you worship the donkey or the elephant as long as it's not the true God. And materialism and worldliness and consumerism and pleasure mongering and utilitarianism and hedonism and, and comfort uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as a right sometimes. We're entitled to these things. That's absurd. But uh, when you have it, you get addicted to it. And we're probably the most addicted culture in history because we've got so much stuff to be addicted to. How often have you heard the old-fashioned word mortification or detachment? Oh, that's for monks. No, it's for all Christians. Finally, the biggie, the worst sin of all, of course, is pride. Uh, always has been from the beginning. It was the devil's sin. Uh, and we, we prettify it. We call it autonomy. We call it uh, uh, self-acceptance. Uh, we call it uh, got to be myself. And we're all tempted to look th at everything else through that lens to, to say, oh, yes, I accept Christianity, my version of it. And I accept the moral law, my version of it. And here is my interpretation of it. What I think about God is terribly important. No, it isn't. What God thinks about you is much more important. Uh, finally, and this is the fifth thing in culture, if you're counting, I'm lousy at math. I'm not sure how far this goes, but uh, if you're taking notes, uh, let's see. This is the fifth cultural thing we have in common. The issues that divide our culture. The issues in the culture war are all issues about human life, about the value of human life. There are only two possible answers to that question. All human lives have intrinsic value or not all human lives have intrinsic value. Some say none of them do. Some say some of them do. Uh, in an extreme case, only some races have uh, intrinsic value. Thank God we don't believe that anymore. But uh, only if the two blades of the obstetrician's scissors have met in cutting the umbilical cord do you have intrinsic value now, according to the law of this wonderful country. Uh, life issues are, are matters of life and death, literally. 
Uh, divorce is an issue that's similar to the issue of abortion because it's an issue of suicide. Uh, suicide and homicide are equally bad. They're both forms of murder. And divorce is murder. Divorce murders the one flesh that, according to the New Testament, is a reality that is created by a man and a woman who marry. This is not just a, a, a nice institution. This is something that is ontologically real and is fragile and it can end. And Jesus very clearly said it should never end. But, uh, but it does. Suppose you went to a country and you found out that 50% of the citizens of that country committed suicide. How happy and healthy would you say that country is? I think you'd say it's in desperate need of something. Well, welcome to America. 50% of our uh, one flesh marriages end in divorce. Those are absolutely fundamental non-negotiable issues. If you don't see that, if you don't have that simplistic mind that can separate the essential from the accidental, then you need light. There are many, many other issues, of course, but uh, this is the one that's a, literally a matter of life or death. All right, now, we are divided. We all confront all of these issues, but there's a Protestant mind and a Catholic mind, and they're not identical. And we've got to get them together, obviously, because Jesus wants it. He demands it. He sweats blood about it. He prays passionately about it. So what we have in common with regard to our unity and our lack of it, uh, I've classified under four things corresponding to Aristotle's four causes. I hope you all know enough about that fundamental, commonsensical, philosophical idea that I don't have to define it very carefully. But all explanations can be classified under four categories. Uh, what is it? What is it made of? Where did it come from? And what good is it? Those are the material cause, the formal cause, the efficient cause, and the final cause. So let's ask those four questions about ecumenical unity. The final cause has to be Christ's will, Christ's desire, Christ's demand. Not ideal, demand, commandment. Moses didn't issue 10 suggestions. Uh, his demand for unity. Uh, the efficient cause, the way, that's also Christ. We're playing in an orchestra. We're playing music. Life is like music. Uh, art resembles life because life resembles art. And the art that moves most minds the most is music. Damon of Athens, one of the seven wise men of Athens, uh, famously wrote, let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. Which moves your heart more, music or law? We have a lot of lawyer jokes, but I never heard many musician jokes. So how to make music? Well, music is based on some sort of harmony, some sort of relationship, some sort of mysteriously beautiful relationship. And we're not playing in harmony, we're playing in disharmony. We have very serious disagreements about very serious things. 
Why? Well, an orchestra has one conductor and the conductor has one baton. And when the orchestra obeys the conductor and follows the baton, it plays in harmony. And when it doesn't, it doesn't. And we doesn't. It was sin that caused the Reformation, sin on both sides. It's sin that perpetrates the tears in the visible body of Christ. Uh, and it's got to be repentance of all our sins, including our, our pride and our self-assurance that, uh, that has to bring us back. That's the efficient cause. The final cause, the definition, what it looks like, its essence, has to be truth. Love and truth are the two absolutes. They're what God is made of. Somebody like Socrates, who is an agnostic or a deist and doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, but he is absolutely committed to truth and dies for it, is, to my mind, certainly going to go to heaven. Not because he's good enough, but because he is deeply in love with that which God is. And when he finds that that which God is is a person, he will be very startled and he'll have to go to remedial theology classes, but he'll get there. We can't compromise truth. We have to be as devoted to truth as Christ was. Uh, the form of our reunion has to be reunion in the truth, whatever the truth is. And finally, the material cause, the content. Well, where do you find the content? Well, the, the mind of Christ, the will of Christ is the content. The justification for believing this or not believing that is that it is part of the logos, the divine logos. The formal cause and the material cause, by the way, uh, for commonsensical Aristotle are not really two entities or two substances. For instance, here, here's your soul and here's your body and this is a ghost and that's a machine and you're a haunted house. No, no. It's more like the the notes of the music and the sound of the music, or the words of a book and the meaning of a book. Two dimensions of the same thing. Notice that all four answers to the ecumenical problem are Christ. And therefore, my last four points uh, for both Protestants and Catholics equally are four practical rules to follow. There are more than these, but I stopped at four because 30 is enough. Uh, rule number one, uh, don't idolize anything, even reunion, important as it is. In fact, maybe the second most important thing in the world, uh, it's a means, not an end. Don't reverse the means and the ends. I just five minutes ago picked up a wonderful book by one of my heroes, Charles Malick, who is, I believe, one of the greatest Christians of the 20th century. He was, as some of you know, uh, the president of Lebanon during its birth and its crisis. He was the secretary general of the United Nations. And he, together with Jacques Maritain, was the main mind behind the best thing the United Nations ever done in all of its history, namely the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is now gradually and subtly going back on in many ways. He writes, The question of ecumenism has to deal with the question of doctrinal evolution since 
1054 and 1517. This is a very difficult question, but those who sincerely put Christian unity above every other consideration except the consideration of the truth and conformity to the will of Christ will not fail with the help of the Holy Spirit to find ways and means for solving even this most crucial question. Notice that it's the second most crucial question. First most crucial question is your relationship to Christ. Uh, second principle, begin with what we have in common. Celebrate it. Talk about it. Uh, explain it. Uh, live it together. Uh, worship together. Uh, confess it together. Uh, we can only be united on the basis of what we already have in common. Just as two people who disagree with each other have to have some common premise. From that common premise, one will argue conclusion A follows. From that same premise, the opponent will argue that non-A follows. They have not A in common, but they have the common premise in common. If they didn't, they couldn't argue. And I've given you almost 30 things we already have in common. So begin there. And third, there's a very, very simple rule that's as easy as the Ten Commandments to understand and almost as hard as the Ten Commandments to uh, obey, which is why we love to nuance the Ten Commandments and make them hard to understand and easy to obey. Uh, and that wonderful word is listen. Listen to each other, sincerely, open-mindedly. Do not demonize each other. Do not assume that each other are fools. Question all your assumptions. Come with a truly open mind. That's an extremely difficult thing to do. The honesty that confesses your humility and your fallibility and, gee, I, I might be wrong. That word, that W word, that's very hard to say. One of my favorite episodes of the old TV sitcom Happy Days has Fonzie, who is very, very cool, uh, interacting with Robbie, who's very commonsensical, about Ralph Mouth, who's a real geek and a loser. Uh, and uh, Fonzie persuades Ralph that he needs some military discipline in his life. He ought to enlist in the Marines. So Ralph, who adores Fonzie, goes and enlists in the Marines, and he's miserable. And Robbie sees that and says, Fonzie, you're the only one he'll listen to. You've ruined his life. It's not too late. He can get out. Go tell him you were wrong. Fonzie says, I can't do that. It's not cool. And Robbie finally persuades him he has to do it. So he goes and sees Ralph and looking miserable. Uh, oh, Fonzie, how are you? Great. Thanks. Thanks for the advice. You made my life. You know, you know Ralph, been having second thoughts. What do you mean second thoughts? Well, Ralph, you know that day that I, that I told you to become a Marine? Yeah, 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 Fonzie, what about it? Well, I was, I was, I was, I was, I can't say that word. <laughs> Why do we laugh at that? Same reason we laugh at monkeys when we go to the zoo. It's a mirror. <laughs> listen. Listen to each other. Above all, last and most important point of all, listen to God. How do you do that? Pray. 
The essence of prayer is listening to God. The essence of prayer is not talking God, informing him of uh, uh, the situation down here on earth, which of course he doesn't fully appreciate, and you have to give him an update so that uh, he can do your will. No. <laughs> you pray in order to conform your will to his, not in order to conform his will to yours. Anybody can pray, even an atheist. Most atheists are really agnostics because atheists are usually honest enough to admit that they just might possibly be wrong. If so, I'll give them the prayer of a skeptic. Hey, God, I don't believe you exist, but I'm not sure. So uh, if you do, please let me know. I want to know the truth, whatever it is. Well, if they play that card, uh, they'll win the game. If they pray that prayer, God will answer. He promised. Seek and you shall find. There were no exceptions. He didn't give you a timetable. He's a lover, not a train. But he comes. Now that's, in a sense, the most important issue of all. Because if you're an atheist, there's no hope. No ground for hope anyway. And somebody is not just seriously wrong, but insane. If atheists are right... All religious believers are as insane as Jimmy Stewart in that old movie, Harvey. Jimmy Stewart is a nice middle-aged guy who's sane in every other way, except that he believes in this invisible rabbit, Harvey, whom nobody else can see. He's the most important person in Jimmy's life. He's nuts. Well, God's even bigger than Harvey and more important than Harvey. So if there's no God, we're all nuts. And Freud was honest enough to say that. In Civilization and His Discontent, he said, the religions of the world are literally collective hallucinations. On the other hand, if atheism is wrong and God is real, then it's atheists who are insane. As insane as college students who go home for Thanksgiving vacation and never talk to their parents, never look them in the face, uh, never thank them for the food or the presents, uh, act as if they don't exist. And there's no middle ground. It's one or the other. And then if you're a theist but you don't know about Christians and about Christianity and about Christ... Uh, the same uncomfortable either-or applies to Christ. I'm sure you're all familiar with the uh, Lord, liar, or lunatic argument. If Jesus is not who Christians say he is, he's the wickedest man who ever lived in the entire history of the world. He is maximally insane, because you can't be more insane than claiming to be God and believing it, or maximally wicked. Worship me. Adore me. Throw away all your false gods and trust your eternal soul to me. I alone can save you. If a man says that to you and he knows it isn't true, he's the devil. No middle ground possible. And finally, uh, both the church and the Bible are either the most arrogant, proud, egotistical fake in the, in the history of the world, or they speak with divine authority. No middle position. And if you're a Christian, you don't know whether to be a Protestant or a Catholic or Orthodox or something else, uh, ask Jesus Christ. Follow C.S. Lewis's advice in the introduction to mere Christianity. If you're a Christian, but you don't know where the authority of Christ is, ask him and enter the door that he gives you, not the door that you happen to like. I think all of these things, Protestants and Catholics can affirm with their whole heart. 
And if we start living that affirmation, uh, we're going to come together. In fact, we have already come together on the most important issue that has ever separated Christians. The 1054 issue was serious, but not nearly as serious as 1517. Because the Orthodox churches at least affirm common creeds, common sacraments. Uh, Protestantism is split into somewhere between 20 and 30,000 different denominations. Okay, so that's a very serious problem. How did the Reformation start? Well, any good evangelical will say the fundamental issue of the Reformation was Luther's doctrine of justification by faith. How do you get to heaven? What more important question could there possibly be than that? All right, there's the non-negotiable. Well, we haven't solved the authority of the church or the pope or the Eucharist or prayers to saints or the doctrines about Mary. We solved that one. I hope you've heard the news. The decree on justification approved at highest levels by uh, worldwide uh, uh, Lutheran bishops and Catholic bishops. The Vatican approved it. Not all Protestants have signed on, but many have. In fact, I think most have. Uh, after decades of preparation, and it went through three different sessions, finally came to the conclusion that this issue of justification, on this issue of justification, uh, evangelical Protestants and traditional Roman Catholics are saying the same thing in different words, and there's no substantive essential contradiction between the two doctrines. Now, nobody in the world thought that could happen 70 years ago, except one. I remember at Calvin College reading a doctoral dissertation by an unknown theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar, John Paul II's favorite theologian, called Barth and Aquinas on justification. And he argued that they seem to contradict each other, but they don't. And I said, that's crazy. And I read into it. I didn't read the whole thing. And I was convinced, yeah, he's right. But nobody else agrees, so I thought I must be wrong somehow. Me, me and von Balthasar, we're, we're a little nuts, and everybody else knows that you can't possibly negotiate that issue. It's been negotiated. And that's the biggest issue uh, in ecumenism. So Goliath is killed. There's still a lot of Philistines around. But uh, if Goliath is dead, the others can die too. I don't know how. Almost nobody knew how that one would, would work. Uh, very briefly, uh, this is a radically oversimplified theology lesson, uh, Lutherans and Catholics selected different versions of New Testament vocabulary to make their point, and they were both right. But Paul himself uses different versions. Uh, and if you put Paul together with James, and you have to, if you believe in the whole scripture, you say, well, in some way or other, both are right. It's a little bit like free will and predestination. What seems to be uh, an obvious contradiction turns upon deeper analysis out to be two sides of the same coin. That's uh, a radically inadequate uh, presentation of a, a complicated and important theological doctrine. But the fact that that division has, in principle, been solved is a miracle. Well, if God can do that, when he can do anything. With God, all things are possible. So let's get on his bandwagon and uh, get off our butts and do what? Absolutely everything that we can. Well, what books should we read? What thoughts should we think? 
Well, those are not the first questions. Uh, I don't necessarily say that everybody's got to read more books or think more thoughts, but I think everybody's got to love more loves and pray more prayers. And if we do that, the sky's the limit. I'm finished. Your turn. Questions? There will be questions, or the beatings will begin. When there are no questions, I love to tell my favorite Aristotle story. It's from Diogenes Laertius's gossipy book, Lives of the Great Philosophers. And nobody knows how many of these are made up and how many are true. But uh, according to Diogenes Laertius, Aristotle, who, like Plato, admired Socrates, used the Socratic method in his teaching. And uh, after he would lecture, he would expect a long dialogue with a lot of questions from his students. After one lecture, there were no questions. He was very disappointed. He said, if you were listening to my lecture, uh, it was about levels of intelligence in the universe. And according to my philosophy, there are three. There is the intelligence of animals, which is considerable and uh, often minimized by human beings, not appreciated. And then there is human intelligence, which is quite different than animal intelligence because it's rational. And then there's the intelligence of the gods, which is quite different than human intelligence because it knows everything from above. Now, you can distinguish human intelligence from both animal intelligence and divine intelligence by the very same empirical fact. You can observe that human beings ask questions. Animals do not ask questions because they know too little. The gods ask no questions because they know too much. So, if you have no questions, shall I congratulate you upon having become gods, or shall I insult you upon having become beasts? The last sentence of a little excerpt was, after that, there were some questions. <laughs>